Tonight on Talking Politics, Governor Charlie Baker is once again defending his COVID surge responses as lawmakers press for more action and mandates. Plus, rent control is looking like a real possibility in the state for the first time in more than a quarter century. We'll get to all that and more ahead, but first to a more immediate housing concern in the city of Boston. The tents that lined the streets in the area around Mass Ave and Melnia Cass Boulevard were fully cleared this week, as Boston Mayor Michelle Wu promised. Tarps, clothing, shoes, blankets, and other belongings were shoveled, bulldozed, and loaded into trash trucks. It was an effort that looked on the surface like the one former Mayor Marty Walsh undertook four years ago. But his successor promises this time will be different. Mayor Wu says her office has been working with everyone who'd been living in the encampments to find transitional housing while more permanent solutions are put in place. But there are still a lot of questions about how the area's former residents will move forward. GBH News' Tori Bedford was on the scene talking to people throughout the day Wednesday as the tents came down, and she joins me now. Hey, Tori. Thank you so much for having me. Let me ask you at the outset, what was the mood as the tents were coming down? And how were the people who lived in the encampments responding as they were cleared? So this is the third sort of clearing. Um, the language is really different. There was a big sign that said street cleaning conducted January 12th. Um, this was the third kind of thing that, like this that the city has done since 2019. So the first one, obviously, Mayor Marty Walsh brought in, you know, he, he was arresting and it was very kind of abrupt. And then former acting mayor uh, Kim Janey brought in, you know, she, she gave a deadline of 48 hours and people were evicted from their tents. And then this time around, you know, since that happened in the beginning of November and now the Wu administration has, you know, they said they've been on the ground working with people. They were able to place 83 people into temporary and trans transitional housing before they came in to do what they call the street cleaning and um, as afterwards, they were able to place 154 people. The mood there, there were still a lot of people who were very confused. There were people who, you know, they would still, I, I spoke to about 20 people who had spent the night out at the encampments. Um, it was frigid, it was, it was super cold, like single digit weather overnight. Um, one man was found dead in the morning uh, in a tarp in a tent. Um, you know, there, were, there was still a lot of confusion about it. I think that people felt like it was still, there's still something about bringing garbage trucks in and hiring people who had been living in the encampments to clear their neighbor's tents hmm. um, for a daily fee. I, I think it's something like, you know, you get paid like $30 for the 10 hours or 12 hours of, of clearing the tents, bringing in the bulldozers, um, some people, you know, they were only able to put things in storage, but they weren't able to take most of their tents and, and their belongings. And there was a lot of confusion. I think there was a lot of frustration. I think some people misunderstood and weren't able to take their stuff out. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to ask you about, I, I listened to some of the pretty remarkable sound that you got from people who have been living there. I want to ask you about one couple in particular. Evalberto Delbri and Wilnelia Rebing. I hope I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. Let's take mm -hmm. a listen to what they told you about their reaction. And then I'd like you to get, uh, I'd like to hear more from you about their situation and what they're going to do next. But first, we'll take a listen. I ain't going to show the book. The thing is, like, I'm sick. I'm an HIV patient. I'm scared. It's scary in there. It's really scary. People coughing, sneezing. People have no masks. 
because my health, I worry about myself, so I prefer to stay outside. I'm open on surgery right now. I still have the tubes in there. And I had two surgeries in the same arm. And it's come and spreading. And I'm just scared. I'm scared to like die and get sick being in the shelter, knowing that I have medical conditions. Tori, I want to make sure I get this right. They were not given private transitional housing. They were uh, placed in a shelter, and they don't want to go for the reasons that so we actually, just described. Yeah. Well, I got there in the morning, and what had happened was the, the previous month, the city did a census, and they counted that 145 people had been living out in the area, and they worked to find them transitional housing. Anyone who wasn't counted in the census was provided with shelter they said, although towards the end of the night, so Mayor Wu came in the morning, assessed the situation, you know, about 10 hours later, came back, walked down Atkinson Street, which had been cleared. There was police tape and around 50 people were standing out on Southampton Street. And, you know, if you went out to talk to them, some of them didn't live in the area. Some people uh, were able to go into shelter, but weren't in shelter yet. But there were quite a few people who had not been counted on that census and they were not provided with that transitional housing that the city had said was their goal. And so Wilnelia and Adalberto, they, you know, Wilnelia has stage three uh, cancer and Adalberto is HIV positive and they just really don't feel safe staying in a shelter. So they had spoken to me about that this morning. They said nobody came and talked to them. Um, the Massey has our Monica Burrell came down with Mayor Wu and we were talking, we're doing an interview on the street. And I asked about the couple because Burrell had said every single person out there we have spoken to, we have offered them options, we have offered them a roof over their head. I remember that I moment where you actually were serving as a, a basically a triage coordinator, hooking them up. Well, with... I, it was a strange position to be in because yeah. I said, well, there's a couple down the street 50 yep. feet away that say that no one has talked to them. And so immediately the city jumps into action. They're able to find them a hotel room for the night. They're getting them transportation to another place to live in Worcester. And so it was interesting because Mayor Wu has also said that there are more transitional housing beds available. The next day, I got a call from another man who said that throughout the day, no one had offered him shelter. He had been out on Southampton Street. He had tried to get into the shelters and had been rejected. And he had, uh, apologize for my dog. You know, it's the way we live. <laughs> totally fine. Right. He, uh, he, um, he walked throughout the street and, and he got on a, a train at some point just for warmth. He ended up in Revere. And he said that's when he just called 911 because it was freezing mm. that night as well. And he ended up spending the night in an emergency room. As so I asked this, there are. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Range of a whole oh, no, range okay. of outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. Just there were still people that were displaced and would have preferred, I think, a little more time to retain their housing structures. And I think, you know, tents, some people were living in tents and Nobody wants to be living out in a tent, but there are people who had kind of put together these structures where they did feel safer than, than being in a shelter, and those were those had to go. As I ask this next question, I want to say, if you need to bring your dog into the shot to, to you know help your dog relax, that's totally fine. I, I want to ask you about that question of what maybe, in theory, could have been done differently. You spoke with another individual, Mayor Feliciano, who grew up on or around Mass Ave and actually spent some time living at Mass and Cass and was there, I believe, helping a friend of his whose encampments were being cleared. Let's take a listen to his assessment of the situation. I don't know, it's sad to see what's happening happen, but something needs to happen. I don't know, I just, it's sad to see this, but there needs to be something better than this style of yeah. life. 
I'd like to get your take on that, given how much you've reported here. Because as you mentioned, you talked to people who experienced terrible cold the night before, who were talking about rats the size of cats running around the encampment. So on the one hand, there's the sense of home and a sense that maybe where they had been is preferable to the other options. But on the other hand, some of what you described just seems completely untenable. What is your take on whether the city moved too quickly to take radical action when it did? What I think is really interesting is that we just have to take a step back and remember that we're talking about human beings. And when you tell someone that they are under threat of arrest, which is under the current executive order from the city, they're under threat of arrest if they do not remove their encampment, you are removing an option for them. And it's not a great option. It's really not safe. I mean, I mentioned there was a death. There was another yeah. body in the past five days. It's really not safe, you know, to be out in these conditions there's a lot of crime. It's really scary for people. But I think that the process, what's curious to me is that there had been a process over the preceding weeks and months to establish relationships with people and set up temporary housing for them. And I'm not sure why a big, you know, garbage trucks and bulldozers had to come in and do this in one day. I don't know if that's because yep. it's more efficient to do that. I don't know if that's you know, it, it aligned with the, the coldest day of the year, but I think it was planned out a month in advance. So I don't think that was, I mean, I know that it was because they wanted to get people out of these dangerous, you know, in this humanitarian crisis before the really cold weather set in. But it was, it, it, I think the abruptness of that, when you are, when you are sort of having police officers telling people, you've got to clear out, you've yep. got to get out of this, you know, I think that's when you are removing an option for people that and making sense. them feel like they don't have a choice. Yeah, you're taking away their agency and doing it in a very dramatic way. Tori Bedford, we have to leave it there, but thank you for sharing the details that you just did. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And you can hear and see much more of Tori's reporting on GBH Radio 89.7 and on our website, gbhnews.com. Org. As the last tent came down Wednesday night, Mayor Michelle Wu was there, as Tori said. But when she spoke outside the Pine Street Inn yesterday, she reiterated this was not a mission accomplished moment. Yesterday was a turning point for the city of Boston. I want to be clear that we did not solve homelessness yesterday. The push and the fight to address homelessness and substance use and mental health continues with even more urgency now. I'm joined now by GBH Politics editor Peter Kadzis and Boston Globe opinion columnist Marcella Garcia. Hello to both of you. Marcella, let me start with you. As Tory Bedford mentioned uh, a couple minutes ago, Mayor Wu was trying to do something that Mayor Janey, acting Mayor Janey, and Mayor Walsh were not able to do, to come up with a solution for Mass and Cass and the problems that, that made it what it was uh, once and for all. Do you think she's going to be able to succeed? Well, um, you know, only time will tell. I'm, I'm going to use the proverbial only time will tell. But if we go by how she handled this, which is, you know, perhaps her, the first major action, major action there, I think that bodes well for the success, her success there. You know, notwithstanding uh, the uh, people whom Tori spoke with, I think that overall, you know, it was a pretty, it was a pretty big deal to have dismantled the, the, the encampments. Like you said, it was, a you know, Walsh tried to do it in the summer of 2019 with Operation Clean Sweep and 
you know, the the images that we got from from that operation, you know, with wheelchairs being destroyed, yeah. there was none of that. You know, we did have obviously uh, dump trucks and, and trash, you know, compactors, but I don't really know what else you could bring to this mental camp of that nature, right? I mean, 140, 150 people there. It's a lot of stuff, right? Um, so, you know, there seems to have been quite a bit of planning around removing the tents, engaging people. Maybe they didn't get to everybody. Um, you know, maybe they didn't give notice to everyone. But if we go by what was said, that not a single person was forcibly removed or there was no arrest, then I think that's that's a good thing. And look, the mayor is right. There, no single action is going to solve the long-term issues there. It's very, very complicated. And, you know, it's a multifaceted challenge and long-term but I think she understands that. And, and the fact that she said that, you know, we didn't solve homeless, well, that, you know, it tells you that she totally understands yeah. that, understands that. But definitely this was the, the right step in, in the right direction. Peter, um, uh, Peter Katz, I want to ask you about a uh, politics, but also media question that came up this week. Mayor Wu raised some eyebrows when she issued guidelines to the press prior to the clearances, first telling the media that we should stay 50 feet away from any individuals. That was changed a couple hours later to 10 feet away. I believe the mayor said it was a typo. And also that we should avoid showing the faces of individuals whose homes were being removed. Uh, what is your take on the mayor trying to shape the way coverage unfolded and trying to make it more sensitive? Well, Adam, uh, let me put it in some perspective. You know, many elected officials, especially mayors, um, are in love with the nanny state. Michael Bloomberg, when he was mayor of New York, you know, fought, tried to fight the war against sugar-heavy soft drinks. Mm -hmm. our, our own Marty Walsh love to tell people don't jump off their porch roofs into banks of snow. Right, not Loon Mountain. Hurt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the Wu administration, you know, just couldn't resist the urge to tell us how to do our jobs. And Tory's very moving story about those people who, for whatever reason, escaped the city's very diligent efforts to contact them would have been less powerful if she didn't have photographs of the people she was talking to. I agree. So um, these are early days for the Wu administration. Hopefully they learned a lesson here. Let's hop to Beacon Hill, where some big important things happened this week. Marcella, Governor Baker met with the legislature's COVID oversight committee and made it clear, as he has in the past, that he is not interested in rolling out new mandates to stem the spread of COVID, nor is he interested at all, under any circumstances, in returning to remote learning. Let's watch an exchange on that latter point. The idea that schools aren't safe is just not based on any data. So, it's just Governor, not. I'm not, and, I'm not, and, and I'm not, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not going to let people perpetuate this idea that schools aren't safe because they are. And it's been proven not just in Massachusetts, but in the U.S. and around the world for the better part of a year and a half. OK. I think what Senator Comerford was trying to say there is I didn't say to you, are schools safe? I was actually asking you about a, a universe or a, a ramping up the quality of masks. She asked a different question than the one he answered, but we know he's down on remote schooling. <laughs> uh, that exchange notwithstanding. 
it seemed to me, Marcella Garcia, like the tone was pretty amiable. Uh, I thought Baker was going to be raked over the coals after some of the failures that we saw coming out of the holidays when it comes to providing masks, providing testing to teachers. But I don't think he was. Uh, why was the, the tone so mellow almost, do you think? Well, I have to, I mean, if I have to guess, obviously, and I'm guessing here, <laughs> it's, you know, I think we, the, the moment we are in this, you know, Omicron surge has to do, it, it, maybe that's the reason why. I, I feel like we are getting the message from the epidemiologists, from the experts, from the science that we're nearing the peak of the surge. And so, you know, maybe there's less of an argument right now to mandate a universal mask, you know, order statewide, right? Maybe this was a thing to do three, four weeks ago, right? Like late December, early January. The second, um, the second reason why I may think that they, it's political, right? Like Baker is not running for, for re-election and maybe I'm being too cynical here, but because I don't think that th their whole drive is political, but part of it is obviously the legislature wants to keep them accountable, hold them accountable, but also, you know, if he were running for re-election, I think the tone and and the, um, those, you know, it, it might have felt different. Yeah. Again, I don't want to be overly cynical, but I think I can I cannot help but think that that might be a reason. That's a, a good point. Peter Kadzis, uh, because we're shorter on time than I'd like, I need to hop with you to another big event on Beacon Hill this week. There was a long seven or eight hour, I think, rent control hearing back when Mayor Wu was campaigning to become mayor and expressing her support for rent control. A lot of people said, oh, it's all fine and good that Michelle Wu supports this, but it's never going to happen. But after this hearing, it looks like it actually could. What, uh, what is changing? Well, the big change is that um, back when Wu was running, there was a, a widely held assumption that uh, Baker would seek re-election and probably achieve it. You know, now that the Democrats uh, have a much better chance of winning the governor's office, um, that changes the whole equation. Um, there is a possibility there. Um, there is a possibility, and it's a possibility that leadership might get behind this. And let's not forget the legislature is a very hierarchical organization. You, you know, right before the hearing, I, I talked to a real veteran social activist. Um, we were talking off the record, so I don't want to mention his name, but he told me that although the real estate lobby is extremely powerful on Beacon Hill, for the first time in years, he sees a glimmer of hope that rent control might actually become a reality. Interesting. Mm. So th th things tend to change, and they did. Uh, Marcelo, last question to you. Staying on this topic, and, and uh, just answer briefly if you can, uh, because I have let things go on too long. But <laughs> rent control is very popular in Boston. There was a recent poll done by Mass Inc., which showed 76% of Boston residents supporting it compared to just 21% who opposed it, uh, which might be why Mayor Wu's victory in last year's election was so emphatic. Do you think that her version of rent control, which involves capping the, the rate at which rents can increase, giving developers other concessions in return for those caps, for example, allowing them to build more densely, could you imagine the real estate and development communities ultimately getting behind where she wants to go? Well, yeah, but that's not the whole issue. You, you're forgetting about you know, incumbent landlords, right? The landlords who, you know, going forward, you may have, you may come up with the right set of incentives for developers 
to, you know, cab rent increases. But Fair what point. about the landlords that we already, you know, we're talking about two different populations here, right? Yep. And so, you know, yeah, the fact that, you know, rent control pulls well, I, I think about it in, in the same sense that, I mean, who's going to oppose rent control in a question in a poll, right? It's like immigration. Everyone is in favor of, you know, reforming our system. But when push comes to shove, it's really hard to do politically. Maybe the winds, the political winds are going to be different now. We have a Democratic governor in, you know, in the state house. But at the end of the day, you're dealing with, I don't know that you can come up with some incentives for landlords to buy into, you know, the cap um, okay. increases. A bracing reality check there for anyone who's excited about rent control coming back. Marcella Garcia and Peter Kedzis, thank you both. Thank you for thank having you. me. There has been a lot to keep track of these days when it comes to the political and public policy aspects of COVID. Sometimes it's not possible to distinguish between the two. Case in point, this protest to Boston's impending vaccine mandates, which has become a near daily occurrence outside Mayor Michelle Wu's Roslindale home. You guys don't want to hear us every single day. Talk to your neighbor, Michelle Wu, and tell her that we should not be Your regular reminder here that vaccines work very well at preventing hospitalization and death. I'm joined now by Boston City Hall reporter Soraya Wintersmith, who brought us that sound in those photos, and Craig Lamolt, who's been covering a whole host of COVID-related issues for the GBH newsroom throughout the pandemic. Hello to both of you. Soraya, tell me a little more about the scene at the mayor's home. Did the protesters maintain that level of volume and vigor the whole time you were there? Yeah, Adam, it's really crazy. Picture, if you will, just a quiet residential street just before the sun rises. It's chilly and you and your neighbors are probably just starting to stir out of bed. Maybe you're waking up your kids and getting them ready to go to school, pick up your phone, look at it. And then all of a sudden there's this sound of music and it's amplified by a stereo system and they're shouting. How did the neighbors that you spoke with feel about having this become a regular feature of life on their formerly quiet Roslindale Street? You know, the folks in Roslindale were adamant about expressing to the protesters that they should take their activity to City Hall. Both of the women that I talked to who just passed by wanted to stop and express their frustration directly to them and say, hey, this is not right. Who has an elderly mother and kids in the house and... And the response was, if you don't like it, then it's incumbent on you to make the mayor change her tune on this, right? Exactly. Uh, Craig, let me hop to you on a different topic. You're working on a story right now involving the strain that the pandemic has put on mental health care. Tell me a little more about what that strain is doing. Yeah, it, it deals with the emergency room beds in the state. Of course, it's a pandemic and emergency rooms are, uh, beds are in high demand. And it turns out that uh, a lot of those emergency room beds in Massachusetts are currently being taken up with behavioral health patients who are there because there's not another bed available for them, an inpatient psychiatric bed for them to move into. So they're essentially boarding in emergency rooms at a time where emergency rooms are, you know, very, very needed. Uh, numbers out today, as of Monday, 605 patients 
uh, were boarding in Massachusetts emergency rooms. Um, and it's not just for short periods of time either. The average uh, is, is six days, and it's even worse for kids because there are fewer beds available, inpatient beds are available for kids. The average kid is staying for nine days in an emergency room. Oof. And I, I have to say that if you are in intense psychological duress, intense enough that you're, you've gone to the ER, I would think the last thing that you need is to be situated in the emergency room indefinitely. You, I know, have identified a couple causes of this, staffing shortages that have unfolded during the pandemic, also the increased psychological stress from the pandemic. Are there measures being taken to address the problems you just described? Yes, there absolutely are. For one thing, the state's actually been working on opening new beds. They, they got 250 beds online, but those beds are only good if you actually have staff that's available to staff them, uh, you know, which has been really the main issue. Uh, they're using federal funds from the American Rescue Plan Act to incentivize more people into the field so they can get more uh, people in, e even using some of that to for, for loan repayment. Some of the hospitals are uh, working with uh, outside state staffing agencies to bring in temporary workers. Uh, and there's new state legislation. It's actually passed the Senate. It's before the House right now, which would uh, address this in a number of ways, including creating a new data portal that uh, would be available for hospitals to really get a better sense of where hospital beds are available and to try and kind of facilitate moving those patients out of the emergency room and into appropriate care. The legislature doesn't always move quickly. This seems like a case where it might be beneficial for them to act with some dispatch. Soraya, let me go back to you for the last word here. Boston's VAX mandates kick in tomorrow uh, for customers and many private businesses, also for city workers. Uh, a judge tossed out an effort to challenge those requirements, stay them in court this week. What comes next on the legal front, very briefly? Sure. The short answer there is that the unions are trying to figure out now where's the best place for them to continue to press their grievance. They've already gone to the city labor relations department. They could go back to the court. They could go to the state. They're just trying to figure out where they can continue their argument. Thank you for that. I had not known what you just shared, so I appreciate it. Uh, good to talk with both of you, Soraya and Craig. And next time, I promise, we'll talk at greater length. Thank you for being here. Again, you can hear and see more from Soraya and Craig along with the rest of the GBH News team on GBH Radio 89.7 and online at gbhnews.org. That is it for tonight, but do come back next week and please keep sharing your feedback with us. For now, thank you for watching and good night.